For the next hour, you'll be leaving the show me state and entering the show me the money state. So stop what you're doing, grab a pen, and get ready to learn. Randy and Jake Floyd of Floyd Financial Group will be your guides for straight talk and honest answers about living the life you deserve in retirement. So prepare to be empowered. Now, here are your show me the money hosts, Randy Floyd, Jake Floyd, and Jeff Shade. Good morning and welcome to Show Me the Money with Randy and Jake Floyd, the radio show that gives you the straight talk and honest answers you need to help you reach your wealth management and retirement goals through smart investing and careful planning. My name is Jeff Shade and as always, I'm just here to ask the questions for you. But of course, the words of wisdom and solid advice come from Randy and Jake Floyd of Floyd Financial Group. And I'll start with you, Randy. How you doing this fine Saturday morning? doing very well, Jeff. How about you? I'm doing great, thank you, now that I'm with you guys in the radio. And Jake, how's this Saturday morning finding you, my friend? Very good, Jeff. Thanks for asking. Glad to hear that. Hope our listeners are doing well today, too. lot to talk about on today's radio show. And I want to start with what's in the headlines. I understand this past week that the consumer confidence gauge came out. What's your take on what you heard with that? Yep, with a super drum roll, please. <laughs> so, so looking back over our shoulder, the last time they measured it was around 110.9. And they were expecting this time 115. And then bah, bah, all of a sudden we came in at 106.7 this time as an actual. Now, what's interesting about that, Jeff, is people say, well, what does it really matter Right. what people are thinking about consumer confidence? Well, Let's think about that. If you feel good about things, that makes you take more action, not less, right? Right. Versus if you feel squeamish about things, you're likely not to do that. So that's kind of what we're seeing here is we're seeing a waning of consumer confidence. And this moves and shakes all the time. So this is not like, hey, this is a seismic move. This hasn't happened in the last four decades. No, it's always a moving target. And we've often said on this show that the stock market itself is a lot the same way. Consumer confidence and also just how people feel in general determines the actions they take. So it sounds like that, uh, as you said, if consumer confidence is down, people are going to pull in their horns a little bit. They're not going to take the action that they would have normally taken. So how does that affect things in general if people are just sort of sitting on the sidelines and they're not very confident? I would say, Jeff, to to be fair, that this is not an ultra low rating, right? So, right, um, right. Some of the highest numbers we see are, you know, in the 130, 140 range. It's generally accepted that anything over 125 is moderately optimistic. Anything under 75 is moderately pessimistic. And so, you know, a 106 is kind of near the center. So, I, I just want to be clear for those who aren't familiar with how they gauge these things. We're not saying that it's ultra low, right? However, it missing to the downside is potentially problematic. And like Randy said, it determines consumers' actions, right? So like one of the questions we get asked a lot, you know, is it a good time to buy a house? Is it a good time to buy a car? Those Mm -hmm. types of things. And the more negative people are, the less likely they are to do those things, which churns through the economy and the trickle-down effect. All that matters from the top level down. And honestly, if we want to curtail inflation, which is what Mr. Powell's been trying to do by raising interest rates and trying to tighten the money supply, if you think about that, uh, you know, we live in this huge age of consumerism, and that is the government will prop me up. So anytime I get a windfall profit of any kind, I go spend more than I had before. <laughs> right, right. Everybody's chasing a lifestyle. I think this is partially driven by social media from the fact that, well, look at that. He's got a new Porsche 911. He's got a Panamera S. He's Ooh. got a twin turbo McLaren. <laughs> I got to go get one of those. You know? Oh, so, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it's it's one of those things that 
you know, hopefully we will come a little bit back to center. I was talking to my wife a couple days ago. I said, you know, when people stop paying more for luxuries in life, right? guess what will come down? Inflation. And prices will come down. As long as there is crushing demand, the prices are going to be driven higher. When all of a sudden there's more stuff than people wanting to buy it, that's when it's going to change. When it comes to Fed policy, we're back to the the bad news is good news and the good news is bad news, right? When we have consumer confidence come in light, it suggests that the Fed may be closer than it was before to easing policy or cutting rates versus if we have a blowout GDP number or a low inflation number, which should be good things. What that means is it's going to be longer until the Fed cuts rates, and so markets tend to go down, even though those numbers are good. And you talked about interest rates being cut. Right now, when are we looking for interest rates to be cut, if they're going to be cut at all? Well, you know, uh, Jerome and all of his people, of course, they talk all the time, but they have an official meeting, and every six weeks they kind of say, well, this is what we think, this is what we're going to do. And coming up in June is when we think it's most probable that the first rate cut would come and it's probably you know not a big number it's probably a 0.25 it would have to be really really moving down in a quick fashion inflation that is for him to move a half point but i do think randy that it's going to matter a lot what the next consumer price index number is the producer price index number the next one so probably two weeks or so from now what those numbers say are going to have a huge influence on whether or not they're going to be ready to cut by june If those numbers were to subside quite a lot, we might even be able to push that rate cut out further. However, if those numbers come in hot, it could be a long time before it happens. So those are the numbers that are probably the biggest ones to watch, core PCE and then CPI, PPI. Those are all going to be on the Fed's radar as they're deciding when and how aggressively to cut or maybe not cut. One thing I would say, you know, we have tax returns getting done now, which means people are soon going to be getting tax refunds, mm-hmm. which is going to put some money in their pocket, which is maybe problematic. Right. Hopefully they would pay their debt down, but we already <laughs> had this discussion about consumerism. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but then the other thing we got to think about is let's say that they they don't overspend and let's say that june 1st comes around we just ended the school year or just about did uh, people haven't vacationed yet then we have that surge that comes every year over the school vacation you know june july and august right uh, which may try to spike things again so it's going to be really interesting to watch and of course then we got this thing I mean, what is it? What's the election we have this year? Uh, the um, presidential thing. Oh yeah, uh, that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're talking with Randy and Jake Floyd of Floyd Financial Group, and we're talking about current events. Let's talk about durable goods orders. Uh, they came out this past week, and they're down just a little bit, right? Yeah, we were expecting down about five percent, which is kind of a normal trend after Christmas and all that. It came in at six and a half down. Now you always have to look at the underlying numbers and what's happening there. You know, Boeing had some big orders come in in December, maybe November and December, but for sure December, and they didn't have anything new come in in uh, January. So that's probably a lot of the drag down on that number. But we'll continue to monitor looking forward. But it was not news that uh, Wall Street wanted to see. And I understand also that bond yields are down a bit. Yeah, basically that means that there's a few people out there uh, thinking it's time maybe to run to safety. And so as they you know buy more and more bonds and there's more and more demand pushes the price up, which pushes the current interest rate yield down as a percent. 
And I understand that the S&P 500 is at 5,300. I was asked recently, when do you think the S&P 500 is going to hit 6,000? I don't know about that. If we look at it right now, the S&P has been as high as nearly about 5,100. It was back to 5,088. Barclays came out and said they thought that it would be 5,300 by year end. I think that it's going to be 5,300 probably long before that, unless there's some huge geopolitical event that happens that we cannot foresee right now. But they were saying by year end they thought it'd be 5,300. And you were asking about 6,000, I think absolutely. As my grandma used to say, if time lasts... Uh, Yes, we will definitely be at 6,000 and beyond because there's something like $7 trillion parked in money market accounts Mm. and even more than that in other fixed interest accounts that as interest rates come down, that money will run back to the market and prop the market up. So we've talked about consumer confidence, durable good orders are down, uh, S&P at 5,300, bond yields down, and Jerome Powell probably will not lower interest rates until at least June. You know, for the listeners hearing all of this and our current events uh, part of the program here today, what does it really mean to them? I mean, how should they take this information? Should they take it with a grain of salt or should they act on it? What do you think? Yeah, so Jeff, to answer your question there, absolutely people should be looking at this type of information all the time if that's what you want to do. You know, people hire Jake and I to do this sort of work because this is not what they consider retirement. (laughs) They don't want to be watching this stuff every day. They don't want to learn about it. They don't want to know. And that's okay. You know, that's not what retirement is about. But if you want to, you know, this is something as you study this stuff and you listen to it more and more. And the reason we try to do this current events segment every time is to kind of give people a feel for what's going on, to kind of give you an idea of what we're thinking and to know that we are thinking about it. And so once in a while, I hear people come in and they say, you know, I've had my money over here at XYZ for 10 years and I've talked to him four times and he never talks to me about anything that he's doing and, and, and what that means. And so we want to stay connected with people and not just here, but also on a personal basis for clients of ours. But we want people to know kind of what we're thinking and we want people to know kind of what the major headlines are and what's going on. Not that they need to necessarily make decisions about this on their own, but if they have questions for us, they can certainly call or reach out to us or at their next review, jot something down and we can talk about what that means to that comment was that we said meant, you know, and we're right. happy to answer those questions anytime. And gentlemen, I would uh, guess that based on our conversation this morning that our listeners may have some questions of you. And if they do, I want them to take this number down, 417-889-7233. It's 417-889-7233. Now, that's the number that you can call to ask your questions of Randy and Jake. But furthermore, you can get in and get your no-cost, no-obligation financial review with Randy and Jake to put you on a path towards a prosperous retirement, or at least a retirement in which you thrive, not just survive. Once again, there is no cost and there's no obligation whatsoever for this consultation. Randy and Jake will meet you where you are. Once again, that telephone number is 417-889-7233. If you're worried that your retirement's not on track, you don't know how to decipher these durable goods orders or consumer confidence or what the S&P is doing and how it applies to you, ask those questions that, again, no cost and no obligation whatsoever and no judgment for this consultation. 417-889-7233 is the number you should call. You could also request your review online at floydfinancialgroup.com. It's floydfinancialgroup.com. Gentlemen, we're going to take a break here. When we come back, we'll be talking about the case for equities. We'll look to the past to find out whether or not we should invest in equities and what the performance has been. When our show continues here on 104.1 FM KSGF, where Springfield comes to talk. Ready for another helping of some more real money talk? Thought so. Now, here's another serving of Show Me the Money 
with your hosts, Randy and Jake Floyd with Jeff Shade. Welcome back, everybody. This is Randy and Jake. You're listening to Show Me the Money. And in this segment, we're going to be talking about the case for equities. Yeah, and to make the case for equities in the long term, gentlemen, I think you've got to look to the past. I mean, that's the way it is with a lot of investments. You'll look to the past, but always the past isn't a predictor of what's going to happen in the future. So how do you feel about equities in terms of judging performance by looking to the past? Yeah, so, you know, if we look back over our shoulder, I mean, really, other than real estate, and not all real estate, but certain sectors and sections of real estate at different times, maybe have performed as well, or maybe in some cases, slightly outperformed equities, but there is no other asset class that is even close other than that. Now, if we look back at the total returns for the U.S. equities from 1926 to 2023, which includes the performance benefits of dividends, they've been really positive for around 73.5% of the calendar year's average annual long-term geometric return of 10.35%. That's pretty darn good, but can you really look at the past economic times were different? Do you think that we should use that when looking to invest in equities as a predictor of future performance? And I think there are disclaimers on radio shows like ours that say past performance is not indicative of future results. That's right, Jeff. We often tell people in here, you know, when you started in the market, when you got in, and when you start your measurement from and to makes all the difference. If you look at equities from, say, 2000 to 2010, that was what we call sometimes the lost decade, where basically there was no money made through there because we had the dot-com bubble that came crashing down, followed by the irrational exuberance of the financial crisis in 2007, 8, and 9 that came through. And so we basically had a zero-sum game. And then you look at it again after the financial crisis starting in 2010 when Ben Bernanke was pumping money into the system through quantitative easing. Then we had like 11 years of the strongest market we've ever seen. So there's always things that are pulling and pushing on the equities market. The thing to think about is the fact that equities is how business in this country really gets done. We look at small business owners that start off, maybe they take a loan, they inherited a business from their folks, or they they were an apprentice of some sort, they go out and they borrow some money, they get started, they develop a concern that really looks like it maybe has some opportunity for some real growth. They take it to an investment banker who takes it out to their biggest investors. They generate interest. They then take it public. They take it to the New York Stock Exchange, and then people trade it on the secondary market based on the performance of that company and what they think it's going to do. I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. Innovation and the growing of business is not going to change. And we're all people. We all need products and services. I think it was the great Gordon Gecko that said that greed, <laughs> for a lack of a better word, is good. Yeah. And uh, while I don't personally agree that greed is good, greed can be counted on. You can count on corporations and people to be greedy, and therefore there's a lot of things that you can work into a portfolio with that knowledge. And so knowing that in some ways, especially in the stock market, self-interest is whole interest, meaning people are doing the very best thing for them, which creates competition among companies. Knowing that that's always going to be the case, and that's human nature and therefore corporate nature, I don't personally think there's a reason to think that it will be significantly different in the future. If you look at the numbers, Jeff, that you said at the beginning of this segment, that's 97 years of, of returns. If you look at the 80-year history, the numbers are very similar. If you look at the 60-year history, the numbers are very similar. If you look at the 30-year history, the numbers are slightly higher over the last 30 years because we have a little bit of bias through the 90s, 40 years are a little bit higher, but they're still very similar. So I do think that things will be different 
they may not, at the end of the day, from a numbers standpoint, be very different. Well, when we talk about equities, I mean, that's a pretty broad term that encompasses a lot of different things. Do you think that uh, we should break this down into individual sectors of equities to determine what things are going to be doing in the future? And what are those different segments of the equity market that we should be basically looking at on an individual basis? Yeah, so I think, first of all, we have to define kind of the difference between, because when people think of the stock market, I'm not sure that people in general, now a lot of the people listening to this program are what I would say probably a little more financially educated than than the general public, okay? Mm-hmm. You know, we haven't done a very good job in this country educating people on how yeah. finances work and how markets work. So we have to talk about the fact that in the market, as we call it in general, we generally are talking about these things called stocks, which is where we have ownership or equity in a company. Then we have these things called bonds where we own the debt of a company. And so when we talk about equities, we're generally talking about stock ownership. If you own 50 shares of Walmart, you are a partial owner of Walmart. If you own 100 shares of IBM, you are a partial owner of IBM. And you get to participate in the growth of those companies through a proxy type relationship. You own that. Uh, you don't get to go up there and say, hey, uh, I don't like what you're doing with the self-checkout lane, so get that changed today. But Boy, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the idea of equities is ownership and everybody having a little piece of a company if they want to versus bonds where you may remember this, Jeff, and a lot of people listening will remember when car companies had what they called model changeover. Oh, yeah. And the reason I know this is because my dad and my brother-in-law back in the late 60s worked for a Ford Motor Company in sure. Claycomo, Missouri. And mm-hmm. so come September was model changeover. So about the, oh, maybe the end of July, first part of August, the plants all shut down and yep. they went in there to retool all of their assembly lines for the new model year. Mm-hmm. They also at that time would go out and issue short-term bonds. So a bonds are where you own the debt of a company. They'd issue a short-term bond. People would send them money in exchange for an interest payment for about six months while they refilled their inventories Yeah. after the model changeover and got those things ready to come out in September. And you may remember that. I mean, I remember that very well, how that worked for years oh, yeah. and years. Oh, yeah. And so the bond market is a good thing. And the bond market is typically something we look at where we have more mature companies, companies that we know can pay interest because they have income. Whereas, you know, here of late and after COVID, we've seen a lot of companies that have no income, have never made any income, and it's all speculation. So you have this vast range of equities that can be very speculative to the Walmarts of the world and the Amazons of the world that, you know, they're not that speculative now. You know, I mean, Amazon's not going out of business tomorrow. So when we define equities for retirees too, we have to start looking at what's an appropriate equity and an appropriate mix of equities from a risk perspective for each client. So if you're 25 and you're working hard and you're saving money and trying to think about looking for retirement, you know, you want to be invested in the broad market and you just want to dump as much money in there as you can and keep doing it. If you're closer to retirement within five or 10 years, you might need to take a second look. If you're within five years and closer, we need to be sure that we're looking at how we're invested, how much goes to the equity market, how much might go to a bond market. Again, the idea of this particular segment we're talking about here is the fact that equities, ownership in companies that are capitalistic in nature, that produce goods and services that everybody loves and wants to buy, 
is hard to beat, especially as a hedge against inflation. And as we said earlier in the program, equities were up from 1926 to 2023. 73.5% is what they were up, but that's almost a 100-year average. I mean, I'm not going to be retiring or I'm not going to be counting on my equities for 100 years. When you look at it, five-year increments, which I think is more realistic, are we still finding that equities over five-year increments are up all of the time? No, equities are never up all the time. In fact, let me just say this. This year, we're probably up 7.4% from January 1st at a 5,088 close as of like yesterday. But if you were to break that down day by day, it looks like somebody took a hammer and broke your teeth. If you opened your mouth, and just it's, it's a jagged it's mess, right? Terrible, yeah. Because maybe that's too graphic. I don't know. But anyway, it's up, down, all around, and always is. So we always tell people it's never straight up. It's never straight down. COVID was pretty straight down there for a yep, few days. Yes, it was. But that was the first time we've ever said, oh, by the way, you got to shut everything down. Right. Which tells you how profoundly great capitalism is, is that when people can work and do things, it works. Have there been times in history when cash has outperformed equities over a five-year period? Yeah, there definitely has been, Jeff. When we're looking at market returns in general, like you were saying, you know, the longer the period, the more likely it is that the market outperforms. To Randy's point, you know, if we're looking at year over year, one year at a time, the market is likely higher roughly 70% of the time. As far as cash outperforming those other 30% where the market is not up, likely cash is outperforming. It's fairly rare that you have a situation where equities are performing well and cash is performing well or cash equivalents such as money markets and things like that. In fact, even through the 80s when interest rates were ultra high, the market was still beating those rates all through that period, meaning when interest rates were 12 and 13 and 15%, the market was up 20 and 25 and 30%. And so for the most part, when cash is paying well, equities are paying better. And again, I want to point out, as as we always say, past performance is no guarantee of future results. And I think that's true now more than ever. But if you do look back over your shoulder, as Randy says, 73% of the time between 1926 and 2023, equities have been up. So if you've got questions about whether or not equities should be a part of your portfolio and how much you should have in equities in your portfolio, I want you to give Randy and Jake a call there at Floyd Financial Group. Ask for your no cost, no obligation and no judgment Floyd Financial Group retirement review. Just a chance for you to sit down with Randy and Jake and ask your questions and get the answers that you need to put you on a path towards a confident retirement. Once again, no cost, no obligation for this whatsoever. So make that call this weekend, 417-889-7233 is the number to call. You can call this weekend, leave your name, your telephone number. Ashley will give you a call back on Monday and she'll find a convenient time for you to sit down with Randy or Jake and talk about your individual situation. Once again, that telephone number, 417-889-7233. You could also request your complimentary plan online at floydfinancialgroup.com. Time for a break, gentlemen. We'll be right back with more of Show Me the Money right here on 104.1 FM KSGF, where Springfield comes to talk. We're back with your financial catch of the day, and it's a big one. Here's more Show Me the Money Radio with your hosts, Randy Floyd, Jake Floyd, and Jeff Shade. 
Welcome back, everybody. This is Randy and Jake. You're listening to Show Me the Money. And in this segment, we're going to be talking about the rule of 100. What in the world could that be? And an optimal retirement portfolio has a healthy balance between stocks and bonds. And a useful ratio has been said to be subtract a retiree's age by 100 and use that number for the dividing point. So what do you think about this rule of 100? It's been around for a while. Is it still useful today? It seems rather broad to me. Yeah, I think it's a little bit too general. You know, a 20-year-old does not need 20% of their portfolio in bonds, just like an 80-year-old probably needs a little bit more tied to growth than 20% of the portfolio. And so now this may be different pre-2008. After 2008, the aftermath of that, when we really started printing a lot of money in this country and artificially driving interest rates down and controlling interest rates at the molecular level, if you will, that really changed things looking forward, where it used to be that when stocks would go down, bonds would appreciate because people would run to safety. Since 2010 or so, when we started printing money, that really has not been the case. Everything tends to go up and down together. And so because of that, and the overall lackluster performance of bonds over the last 10 years, which I think bonds total return over the last 10 years is around 19 or 20% as of this moment, not per year, but total, meaning, you know, one and a half, 1.8%, you know, compounded return. It doesn't make a lot of sense to put your money into bonds in a lot of cases when interest rates are so low. You're taking all the risk and not really getting rewarded for the performance and the risk that you're taking. Back to the rule of 100, I do think that it's kind of an overgeneralization. If you're 60 years old, it might be uh, where it works the best, but it's still maybe a little bit too conservative in today's world post-quantitative easing or money printing. I might add too, Jake, that what really comes into play here too is what is the current interest rate? If interest rates are 5 and 6%, There's a lot of people that say, well, you know, I've done a good job saving. I got $2 million. I got a million dollars. I can pull $60,000 or $120,000 a year and never touch my principal. Well, that changes how you look at your risk profile and and what your perspective on life is. Or we have people, too, that have all this money that they've saved and they still live on $50,000 a year and they got $60,000 a year in Social Security. Those are few and far between now, but they are still out there. Those folks that have just saved and saved and saved and never spent anything. So we got to take into account what's going on with current interest rates. So you're right, Jake. It's just the generalization of the rule of 100 just doesn't play out over and over again you know and then we have all the other things we have to stack on top of this like we always talk about do you have a pension how much is social security how much have you saved how much risk are you willing to take how much anxiety does it cost does it cost you to have risk some people say oh you know i'm okay with risk i've been doing this a long time i've watched my balance go up and down and up and down and up and down and i know that it always comes back i just would say this that in every case The rule of 100 can hold some water, but each case is individualized based on the needs of the client. I do think in general too, Randy, that, um, you know, the rule of 100 was most likely invented by people that think an annuity is the answer for everything. While there's nothing inherently wrong with annuities in general, there's a lot of them that are not very good. There are some that are good. They are certainly not a solution for every problem. And I think that a lot of the rule of 100 is perpetrated by people that really want you to have as much money safe as possible, 
which again is is not necessarily wrong. It's just it is going to cost you gains in the long term, and there's also liquidity factors that that need to be considered there too. So when we're thinking about the rule of 100 or any advice that anybody is giving you, you always have to consider what acts they have to grind. Yeah, and the rule of 100 has been around for so long. There are a lot of these rules out there, or rules of thumb is what I call them, and maybe they were good at one time because it really makes it very very simple. It seems that if you use the rule of 100 and I'm an investment advisor, I really don't have to do too much work. But in reality, investing for one's retirement is a lot more complex than that. Yeah, I think it's a little bit like when you're calculating your max heart rate, right? So um, if you've ever been involved in exercise and things like that, you have zone one through zone five of your of your different heart rates. The generally accepted way to do that is you take 220, take 90% of that, and then subtract your age off of it, and that's your, your max heart rate. The problem with that is that doesn't allow for athletes who are really at the top of their game at right. 20 years old. They very commonly run 210 and 220 heart rates. Obviously, it's broken just on principle right there. It is a good guideline to know where your heart rate zones are, but it is not the be-all, end-all. And I think the rule of 100, the 4% withdrawal rule, and all those things, you can say that as a rule of thumb, they're not inherently wrong, but it is a much more complicated discussion than some people want it to be. Yeah, and along that same line, I mean, I think about the BMI, the body max index. I mean, I've known people whereby, uh, you know, they had a high BMI, but they were all muscle, and uh, it said that they were obese, so it doesn't always apply. Yeah, they were just jacked. I mean, Randy, that's pretty much you, isn't it? So, you know, I saw my doctor here a while back, and he said... He said, I looked at your BMI, and he said, I looked at you, and I asked my intern, is this the right guy? And he actually said that. He said, because you are obviously not obese, but your BMI is 30. Well, and Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime, you know, would have had a a 30 or 40 BMI, even Uh, though he was 2% body fat. So as a guideline, I think BMI probably uh, comes up shorter than most of these guidelines. Almost never really makes sense. But I do think that relating that back, I do think that it is interesting how everybody kind of wants things to be ultra simple and some things just aren't that simple right and you know what's this soccer player's name the guy that gets paid more than anybody ronaldo or messi probably makes more than ronaldo does today but yeah you're talking about cristiano Cristiano ronaldo so to give you an idea i'm on the doctor's table and i'm laying back and they're giving me an echocardiogram right just to check me out right and the intern goes brady cardia yeah he runs you know, so bradycardia is anything under 60 beats per minute resting heart rate. Yeah. So this Ronaldo guy has a 32 yep. oh resting gosh. heart rate. So the rule of 100 would mean he was probably dead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I remember when I was really training hard for my Ironman stuff, when my son was born, I had to go in for the RH test, you know, to see how yep. your blood compatibility is and all that. And I remember she took my pulse and she, she looks at her pulse thing and then she looks at me. And she looks back down at, at the pulse thing, and I was like, <laughs> "I was like, is everything okay?" She's like, "You're you're at 38." When I was running, yeah, there was a time where I was running 50 miles, 60 miles a week. Oh and, my gosh. Um, I had that going on too, and so she was like, you know, "Are you are you about to pass out? You know, are you okay?" I'm like, "No, this is this is pretty normal for me." Wow. But I think it's incredibly remarkable at age 67 that Randy's, uh, you know, my dad here, his resting heart rate is under 60 is very remarkable. And I think that we should all aspire to be more like Randy. Yeah, well, uh, Randy is a remarkable human being, and I've always known that about him. How much do you want the check to be? (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, anybody that does a half Ironman does the things that you do, gets up so early in the morning and bikes and swims and all that. I really take my hat off to you. So anyway, we're talking with Randy and Jake of Floyd Financial Group. We're talking about uh, simple rules. We've been talking about the rule of 100 and uh, the 60-40 stock bond split. So if there is not a rule that you should follow for this sort of thing, how do we know how much we should have in stocks and bonds? I mean, is there a formula that you use for this? So, you know, Jeff, that's a really good question. Every time we sit down with a client, you know, we have our five-step process that we go through. And as we learn about the client, how they feel about risk, how much risk they can emotionally and mentally take, how much income they need from their portfolio, what their social security, if they're lucky enough to have a pension, what that looks like, and what their baseline of income is to support the retirement lifestyle they want. Those are all the things that factor into us developing a portfolio, how much risk we can take and should take, what the outcome is going to be. And then we we put rails around there so that we don't have too much downside risk while not limiting the upside potential to where we can't make any money. So it's a moving target for everybody. The thing that I think I am really happy about in most cases, once we get done sitting down and talking to people and helping them develop their portfolio, they now feel connected to it and understand why we did what we did. And if we can do that and achieve that and then maintain that relationship and keep people connected, everybody feels good about it. They feel good about their retirement. They're not looking back over their shoulder. They can relax and know that, hey, we got this, it's all good, and go live their life and have some fun. Well, everyone has different fingerprints, and I think everybody is different in terms of their wants and their needs and their goals and desires for retirement. Is it true that no two retirement plans are exactly alike? Well, that's 100% for sure. Now, I imagine, I guess, if you took a million different retirement plans of people, there might be two that would be really pretty similar. But as a rule, no, they are just not the same. Everybody that comes in here, they have a different family dynamic. Everything is, is different about people. There's there's no two people that are exactly the same. The same in a lot of ways, but no two portfolios, no two retirement income streams and setups are the same. I think we should give credit to Grandma Maggard. Didn't she say something about no two people being the same? How did she put that? Everybody's got a nose and they're all different. Yeah. <laughs> we quote Grandma Maggard many times in this show. She'd yeah. be happy to know that she's had this lasting impact on us. We're talking with Randy and Jacob, Floyd Financial Group. We've been talking about the rule of 100 and how generally these rules of thumbs just do not apply to people. What you need is a comprehensive plan that takes a look at you individually, what your wants, your needs, and your goals are, and who you are in retirement. Everybody has a different goal or a plan in retirement. And once we find that out, then uh, Randy and Jacob, Floyd, financial group sort of reverse engineer a plan to fit those needs. So if you're one of those people who does not want a blanket plan, who wants something custom designed for them, then I encourage you to give Randy and Jake a call at Floyd Financial Group. 417-889-7233 is the number to call. That's the number for your no cost, no obligation, and no judgment complimentary retirement review. It's not going to cost you a dime. Just a friendly conversation between you and Randy and Jake. It is a no tie zone there at Floyd financial group, they'll get to know you and what you need in retirement and design a plan to do that. If you've got a plan from another financial advisor and you want to get a second look at that, by all means, bring it into Floyd Financial Group. They'll tell you whether or not you could use some changes or whether it's okay. Once again, 417-889-7233 is the number to call. Go ahead and give it a call this weekend if you would. 417-889-7233. You can also request your plan online at floydfinancialgroup.com. Time for a break, gentlemen. When we come back, 
back. We'll be talking about long-term care and more when our show continues here on 104.1 FM KSGF, where Springfield comes to talk. Ready to climb a mountain of financial know-how? Good, because it's time for more Show Me the Money with your financial Sherpas, Randy and Jake Floyd. Welcome back, everybody. This is Randy and Jake. You're listening to Show Me the Money. And in this segment, we're going to be talking about long-term care, the possibility you may need it or not, and other bullet points. Yeah, and it is surprising the number of people who are going to need long-term care. And I think the average is if you're 65 years of age, there's a pretty good chance that you're going to need long-term care of some sort. Randy, do you remember roughly what those statistics are? Yeah, so if you talk to the government, they'll tell you that 70% of people will need some type of long-term care before they leave the planet. Now, I know this from years and years of experience. We did our first Medicaid case for long-term care for a nursing home to help a client keep from spending their life savings in 2006. It was right around November. And so I remember it very well, but we've been doing planning of this sort since then. So we're 17, nearly 18 years in. I can tell you that if you know, we flip a coin, uh, heads, it's me, tails, it's you, Jeff. And I always use a double-tailed coin. <laughs> That's right, to make sure that it's always me. You are pretty good, Randy. I think you're going to be fine <laughs> wait, well wait, into wait, your wait, elder wait, years. Wait, 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 wait. You used to always tell me that it was heads I win, tails you lose. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, our conversation is based on a question that we got here from a uh, listener who has long-term care policies, actually has a couple of them, and they're worth $600,000. Now, he unfortunately has been uh, diagnosed with a situation which is not good early in age, and he's worried about uh, running through this long-term care insurance. So let's talk about long-term care a little bit. Are long-term care policies really all they're cracked up to be? Well, now that's a mouthful that you just said there. So number one, we have to kind of go back and say, okay, there's basically two types of long-term care insurance plans. That is the traditional type where we would buy a daily amount of income to pay for long-term care, but it would be $200, $250, $300 a day. When you take that by month, it becomes six to you know $9,000 a month that you need. Now, I will tell you that $600,000, personally, I think is ample coverage of that type. I could not even imagine what it would cost to buy that type of coverage at 70 or 75 years of age today, it would be cost prohibitive, especially if they have one for both husband and wife. The problem with traditional long-term care insurance was and is people started off at a premium they could afford. And over the years, 10, 15, 20 years, because most people don't need long-term care I mean, there, there's always the anomaly, right? But the average age, and there, and nobody's average, right? But right. the average, if we were just to look at it and get a composite, it's probably in the 80 to 82 range. So you may pay for a policy for 15, 20 years before you ever need it. And then I will tell you, that too, that statistically speaking, for women, it's about a 3.2-year need, and for men, it's about a 2.2-year need, and that's just because mom will take care of dad and keep him at home as long as humanly possible, and even to her detriment and her health suffering. And then after that, most of the kids are still, they have kids or they're working full-time jobs and they can't come take care of mom, so she goes a little earlier than dad did. It's kind of what ends up happening. But the traditional long-term care insurance many times prices people out of the market. Now, they do have today what's called a non-forfeiture rule, which basically says, hey, if you can't afford it and you forfeit your policy, 
we will pay you back in benefits when you need long-term care up to what you've paid in for the policy if you let the policy lapse. Not that they're going to give you a lump sum back. You're going to have to use it for care. Now, when it comes to long-term care policies, uh, as you said, they're maybe not right for everybody. So let's talk about some of the other ways that you can pay for long-term care. I understand that at Floyd Financial Group, you really isolated this down and you used to do a seminar on the four ways to pay. Let's cover those again. Sure thing. So four ways to pay basically said, hey, you can reach in your hip pocket and write the check each month. Now, Jeff, Right here in middle America, right now, it's about $250 a day to be in a full-blown skilled nursing facility. So you're talking $7,500 a month. Most people just can't afford to pay that out of their hip pocket. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to say, you know, you need to do some planning of some sort unless you're comfortable with being able to cough up $7,500 or about $90,000 a year to take care of your long-term care. Secondly, we have uh, out of the four ways to pay, the hip pocket, number one. Number two, we have a veterans administration. If you're a veteran, there may be some benefits available out there that will reimburse you for the cost of care. That could be home health care, assisted living or finally nursing home. But there are some qualifications you'll have to meet there, both financial and health-wise. But it is a very good benefit that's out there. Then briefly here, we talked about the traditional type of long-term care insurance. But now that today we have these things called asset-based long-term care, which sometimes can be a life insurance policy that has uh, benefits for nursing home on it, or sometimes it can be an annuity-type contract that has benefits for long-term care on it. Some of those can be very, very useful. And the thing I like about all of those is those don't change. And what I mean by that is they don't price you out of keeping it and having it once you have it. So out-of-pocket, traditional long-term care insurance, some type of asset-based long-term care insurance, Veterans Administration, or we can file for Medicaid Mm -hmm. in certain situations, and that is a pre-planning event. Two types of people, those that will buy long-term care insurance or those that cannot or won't or maybe for health reasons, maybe because of monetary reasons, and they will rely upon Medicaid. But if you've got family farms and homes and things that you need to protect, you need to look at doing some planning through an elder law attorney. And Randy, I understand that right there in the building, you have one Elizabeth Floyd who specializes in this. This is true. She is uh, an attorney and an elder law attorney and has been working with attorneys prior to her getting her license and doing all this type of work. Again, she and I were, were sitting down in 2007 starting to do these plans. So it's not her first day out of the house. I mean, she's got 17 years of this behind her, really knows and understands that side of the business well. Yes, she is my daughter-in-law. She's still one of the smartest people I know. Well, she'd have to be smart to be married to Jake Floyd, don't you think? I think so. (laughs) So for those people who uh, need to pay for long-term care, as we said, there are about four ways to do it. Out of the hip pocket is one. Most people are not plumb to do that. The other is if you are a veteran, there's something called aid in attendance. But again, you're going to be reimbursed for that. If you're not a veteran and you can't afford to pay for it out of the hip pocket and maybe you don't have a long-term care policy and you're going to be relying on Medicaid to pay for long-term care. Now, this uh, requires some planning. There is a look-back period. It's around five years or so. So don't think, well, next year, Grandpa's going to need to go into long-term care, so we'll just divest our assets. There's a five-year look back on that, isn't there? There is. And the other thing I would say, too, you know, there's many, many little nooks and crannies and qualifications and things that you must think about and know and understand 
to really administer this setup properly. Now, Elizabeth has been doing it for many, many years, and then she has a case manager here. Her name is Kayla, and Kayla has been filing Medicaid and stuff for the last 12 years, and she worked in nursing homes for a number of years prior to even coming here and working. So let me put it this way. So at Medicaid, Kayla knows the caseworkers and they know her. So <laughs> so that, so just to let you know, it's not their first day out of the house. They know exactly what they're doing. Now, I've heard that when you have Medicaid, that the Medicaid people are going to take your house. They're going to take everything from you that you can't have anything more than maybe a rundown old car and maybe a thousand bucks or something like that. Is there a way or have you come up with a way to possibly save the family farm or at least part of the family farm from Medicaid? Sure thing. So a couple things that people need to know and understand. We and Elizabeth and Kayla are not doing anything outside of the rules and regulations of Medicaid. Right. They go exactly by them. We show the state of Missouri and what's called Missouri Health Net Medicaid. Everything that we've done, everything that we do, all we do is apply the rules and regulations that are set forth in the income maintenance manual that the state of Missouri produces. Okay, so as you said, there is a way to save the family farm, but again, this does take some planning, doesn't it? It does. You have to get ahead of the curve, and it helps if you can get ahead of it five years. Again, there's quite a bit that goes into it, but what's really great is Elizabeth and Kayla, or Elizabeth mainly on the front end if you're doing pre-planning, will sit down and walk you through the whole process to where everybody's really comfortable with what's going on. When it comes time to actually file based on those documents that may have been done, Kayla will do a lot of the filing there uh, with Elizabeth's oversight. And then if... Uh, you're in a situation where you have a crisis on your hands right now where somebody is really, it looks like they're definitely headed to the nursing home where they have a debilitating disease that's going to place them there. You should try to get ahead of that as quickly as possible and sit with these guys to develop a good care plan for your, your loved one, as well as a way to protect their assets and assets maybe of a spouse they may leave behind or a family farm that they want to keep in the family. And I want to differentiate between Medicare and Medicaid. Medicaid's one thing, and some people think that Medicare will pay for long-term care, but it will not. Medicare pays for things that you get better from, right? As a rule of thumb, that is exactly right. It needs to be something that you're going to be able to rehabilitate from. And kind of the differentiating factor is if somebody's been in the hospital, they've had some type of a dread disease or an event where they fell, maybe broke a hip or something like that, and they go to rehab, the day that you stop improving and you don't get better and you still cannot perform activities of daily living, which is basically bathing and dressing and toileting and feeding yourself, transferring in and out of a bed or a chair. Or as I sometimes say, if you've got, you know, if you have cognitive impairment, that alone can trigger the need for long-term care, you know, when you can't protect yourself or don't know where you are and that sort of thing. We just need to be sure that we have had all these conversations and, and we know exactly what's happening. After that, though, once you have hit that point to where your rehabilitation has stopped and you're no longer improving and you still have activities you cannot perform, that's when you will graduate into what's called long-term care status. 
So if our listeners have questions about long-term care and how to pay for that, of course, uh, Floyd Financial Group has the answers for you. If you'd like to sit down with Randy and or Jake or maybe Elizabeth there at Floyd Financial Group and uh, talk about your situation as it applies to long-term care, I invite you to this weekend, give us a call, make your appointment to sit down and have that conversation. 417-889-7233 is the number to call. Now, don't worry. It's not going to cost you a dime to do this. It is totally complimentary. 417-889-7233. This is a magnificent opportunity for you at no cost and no obligation to get your questions answered. Again, it's not going to cost you a dime. There is no judgment whatsoever. 417-889-7233. You can also request your complimentary plan online at floydfinancialgroup.com. It's floydfinancialgroup.com. Well, Randy and Jake, we just get started. Then before you know it, time is up. So we got to get out of here for this week. I want to thank you for your time. But most importantly, I want to thank the fine people here of the greater Springfield area for joining us. For Randy and Jake Floyd, I'm Jeff Shade. Have a great weekend, won't you? We'll talk to you again next week with another edition of Show Me the Money right here on 104.1 FM KSGF, where Springfield comes to talk. The information provided in the preceding program is for educational purposes only and are not intended as investment advice for any individual or entity. All information contained herein believed to be from reliable sources, however, we make no representations as to its completeness or accuracy. The opinions expressed are subject to change without notice and do not constitute financial, legal, or tax advice. Please consult your financial professional before executing any financial strategy. Financial planning offered through Floyd Financial Group, LLC, an investment advisor registered in the state of Missouri.